0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In this podcast, Matt Welch and I interview Brad Jerzak. Brad is a groundbreaking theologian who has developed an understanding of the nonviolent atonement, of the peaceableness of the New Testament and has written extensively then on the focus of theology, or the the focus that it should be on Christ, on Jesus as the hermeneutic through which we read the rest of the Bible. So I hope you enjoy this uh, interview with Brad Jerzak. Matt's here. I'm Paul Axon and Brad Jerzak in Western Canada, right?
1: Yeah, I'm in Abbotsford, which is about 40 minutes away from Vancouver, and we're right on the southwest corner of Canada, so I'm just two miles from the Washington state border as well.
0: Okay, so we can practically count you as one of us.
1: Yeah, at least a vassal state.
0: (laughs) So I guess I was just going to
2: say that I guess I, I really appreciated kind of where you're coming from, moving from, I couldn't figure out if it was more of like a charismatic beginnings, but all I can tell you is a little bit about myself, is I've been a Christian for about 13 years, I didn't grow up in the church, but I became a Christian in 2006, um, through the, the Christian church, baptized into, you know, sort of out of Calvinism. I studied Calvinism for years uh, as a teenager uh, in my early 20s. I My dad was a Calvinist, you know, and I, so I sort of learned the system really well and was, you know, D. James Kennedy and R.C. Sproul and read all those guys and really understood it and uh, was a heroin addict at the same time. <laughs> so I was really good at the theology. I knew it all, but I was, you know, I was getting high and, and uh, reading, you know, Sproul or whoever. So, you know, we all we say here that bad theology can kill you. You know quite literally. Bad Matt's
0: theology. my Matt's my poster boy for bad theology. I always use <laughs> him. Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's hilarious. Um, long story short, I ended up going and uh, studying uh, in a small college, and uh, Paul was my major uh, professor. And we read uh, Stricken by God back in probably oh, I don't know 2007 or eight or something like that. And we were all taken with it because we were kind of working out our you know nonviolent notions of, of who this God revealed in Christ must be. We were already reading Moltmann and some other people. We were kind of trying to you know see so your your work was like a gift. And so we appreciate that and appreciate you, ha- you know, having you on to talk with us. But um, kind of like my own trajectory, was, it has been sort of out of Calvinism and then into the, the Christian church, um, and I've been doing that for a while, and now I'm uh, in the process of becoming uh, Eastern Orthodox. So we have kind of a similar journey, I think, in that. I just want to start out by thanking you for, for coming on the show, and then maybe uh, Paul can, can talk a little bit, too, about uh, you know, where he's coming from.
0: I think we're both focused, not that we're going to limit it to this, but your most recent book, uh, that Matt and I have both been reading through it, um, Christ like God. Let me tell you a story. Jason Rodenbeck said that I absolutely had to say this. it's not a It's not a wild tale, but I had found your book stricken by God. And Jason was here, he was working in the same low college, and he was at that time a kind of nationalist, you know, a typical evangelical. I pointed him to Stricken by God. And he read it, and later went to another college where he became a professor of theology, and he used your book, uh, that book, as a text in the class, and became thoroughly saturated in the book. And I had to admit to him that I had read your introduction, but I had never read any other. <laughs> I knew what the book was, but so he, he became thoroughly acquainted. So uh, you had you had a huge uh, impact on him too.
1: Yeah, I tried to cover everything in the intro.
0: <laughs> I thought I thought that did it. <laughs> Can yeah. you tell us, run down for us a, a little bit, Brad, about your journey spiritually?
1: Sure. So I grew up in a conservative Baptist home for the first 20 years and learned to love Jesus, the Bible, sharing my faith, and all of that good stuff, prayer. Uh, But also the context was dispensationalism was, um, you know, the traveling evangelists got really into sort of the left behind Armageddon stuff back then. I went to a conservative Bible college after that, and by the time I was done, um, my wife, I was married to Eden, and my wife's church, Bethel Mennonite, called me, so I ended up becoming an ordained Mennonite minister, and that's also where we began to encounter the Holy Spirit and sort of took on a small C charismatic openness, at least, and a good relationship with the vineyard folks, and also a lot of experience in inner healing work in those days. And that's when I began to really see uh, the nature of God as nonviolent, even as I was struggling through the issue of uh, penal substitutionary atonement and eternal conscious torment, all the retributive things, right? Um, it wasn't adding up, even though my master of arts thesis was a defense of penal substitution. Um after 10 years there, we planted a church that was really focused on people on the margins, uh, people uh, with disabilities in full-time care. That was about a third of the congregation. Uh, a lot of addicts, the poor, and so on. And again, we would just see how Jesus works with these people. And if Jesus is a revelation of the nature of God, then I needed an upgrade in my theology. And so by that time, I had... a. You know, four a years, four-year, four-year bachelor's degree in biblical studies and an MA in biblical studies and a Master of Divinity on top of it. But most of what I knew about God was happening in the front lines of pastoral ministry, and so um, it all began to unravel on me. And and um, during those years, I met Archbishop Lazar Pahalo in 2003, and he's an Eastern Orthodox monk, and um, he helped. I Me mean, walk through the strands of my atonement theology, and ultimately uh, was my mentor at the time when we wrote stricken by God. I sort of sat at his feet for ten years and just learned from him, but I also continued pastoring until two thousand and eight. and that's when I stepped down. Um, and we had a lot of tragedies that year, and I just my nervous system couldn't help it. So my wife stepped in as the lead pastor, and then I retreated. Uh, from that kind of responsibility into PhD studies. And um, that's when I did my PhD in theology and really went further on this whole idea of, um, uh, you know, what is the cross about? And then finally, uh, I graduated in, in fall 2012, and that's also when I joined the Eastern Orthodox Church officially. And so I've been fellowshipping there. I'm one of the monastery preachers. I'm a reader, which means we also, I do chanting and stuff like that. Um, But in terms of the vocation now, I I became an academic. Um, I taught for a while in England uh, by commuting, modular programs. And now I'm the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada, also a modular program. So that's where I'm at these days. And a lot of that journey then um, gets recounted, actually, in, in the book you're reading now, More Christ Like God. And in case you didn't know, the sequel has just come out, A More Christ-like Way. And so now we're, we're talking about how Christ reveals not only deity, but also humanity, what it is to be human. And we call this the Jesus Way. And so mm-hmm. that's the latest in my life. That, that's my elevator speech.
0: I'm curious. It seems like that from Stricken by God and through your passage through the Mennonite faith, that peaceableness and nonviolence are at the heart of the gospel. Am I correct?
1: I believe so. Um, It is called the gospel of peace. Uh, We serve a Prince of Peace, and that Prince of Peace has given us a mandate to love and bless and pray for our enemies rather than kill them. Um, But also that's a demonstration of of God's orientation towards us, uh, that in His very nature, He's love. And so... So uh, that's manifest as mercy, and, and uh, reconciliation is really all about uh, making our peace with a God who's never been at war with us.
0: So that peace is a center resource. That theology goes in many directions. It's descriptive of God, and so part of your work is focused on a nonviolent understanding of the to- atonement that simultaneously gives us a nonviolent understanding of God.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, In the Orthodox Church, we would say that because the nature of God is infinite, triune love, there is no retribution in his nature. And it's out of retribution that we would get ideas of wrath, which strictly, strictly or literally defined is violent anger. And so we we would say that that is a projection or an anthropomorphism that is not worthy of the God revealed in Jesus.
0: And you've described that your early work was with inner healing, and I assume that is also then an, an understanding of participating in the peace, the peaceableness of the Trinity of God.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right because what you're doing in inner healing work really is you're bringing a person to uh, peace in themselves, uh, not only peace with God, but peace with others, peace with themselves. And so we're not just addressing violence with peace. We're also addressing things like um, the need for healing of our wounds and, and how peace addresses anxiety in our souls. And especially when our hearts have been torn and divided, how, um uh, How we come to integration and wholeness. And all of that would be peace building work, I would think.
0: And so here's the question for me, this is the very heart of the gospel. And I have yet to find a tradition, either East or West, that embraces an overt nonviolence as a necessary part of our apprehension of who Christ is and who God is. Am I mistaken? Is that an understanding that you think is there in the um, Eastern Orthodox tradition?
1: Um, I would say the earliest of the Church Fathers, let's say up until the early 300s, would have been fairly consistent about that, I think. Um, The only time they would use metaphors of violence would actually be the, the overthrow of death itself. And so... Um, in in those first three centuries, you know, really uh, they believed in the new kingdom that Isaiah foresaw where we would not only uh, beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks, one of their favorite passages, uh, but also that Isaiah says we won't even train for war anymore. So those who were in the military were generally called out of it and not only because of the violent end of it, but also because of allegiance to empire and militarism and all that. So, so I see that stream in those very early writers and it gets compromised in the fourth century when they kind of get in bed with the emperor. Um, Later I see it in movements uh, like the Anabaptists who become the Mennonites and, and, uh, and in the Quakers, but you know, it's interesting then because you, you think of these little groups that are, called pacifists. Um, in the early days, they would have been called Christians. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. um, and even in the Orthodox Church, you know, while, while I love my nonviolent God, <laughs> um, that's a movement that's been very vulnerable to nationalism and to blessing fighter jets and to, you know, and, and so I just see tremendous hypocrisy in that, except among, you know, pockets like uh, Jim Forrest in the Orthodox Peace Fellowship. Or Dorothy Day and the Roman right. Catholic right. workers' movement. It's far too rare.
0: Yeah. I guess I'm just disaffected from any institutional understanding which would not embrace as part of its core understanding of the gospel nonviolence.
2: I guess I wanted to ask Brad maybe in a more, a bit more of a provocative way. And remember, I'm coming from a. From a background of being a Calvinist many years ago and being, you know, nationalistic, just as you were talking about with Jason earlier and, and things like that. And one of the things I think that Brad does really well in his book is he's basically arguing that Jesus didn't come to save us from the Father, but that he came to save us from, you know, sin and death. I guess I'm just wondering in light of our conversation with, you know, there, there is sort of this idea of God that is retributive. He's violent. He's angry. He's um, He requires a sort of a blood sacrifice. And Brad goes to great lengths. And by the way, I would highly recommend A More Christ Like God. I think it's a great uh, work. Um, you know, Eugene Peterson calls it magnificent. He says it's the best, you know, atonement theology that he's read. And, I mean, it's, it really is. It's a, I would use it as a textbook. It's a great work. And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, whenever you couple some of these sort of um, – you know, penal substitution and contractual exchange and ideas of God, you know, predestining people, well, the vast majority of people, to eternal conscious torment for his own glory and things like that. And again, I'm asking this as a person who's come out of a fundamentalism. And I'm wondering, I often wonder for myself today, worshiping the God of peace and of nonviolent love and of, you know, goodness. I sometimes wonder if I'm worshiping the same God. And so, and, and I, I, don't, I hate to, I don't want to ask in too provocative a way, but for the people who subscribe to some of these sort of, you know, a violent God or a God who requires blood sacrifice or, you know, uh, the God who predestines, you know, people to, to eternal con- conscious torment and things like that. Um, do they worship the same God as we do? Or Brad, in the, in the language of your book, you know, do they worship
1: the same God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ? Well, there's, there's two sides to my answer, and both are very important. So when we talk about God as God is, God in God's self, there is only one God in my, in my worldview. And so let's say when, a, when I call out to that God in prayer, when a Calvinist calls out to that God in prayer, when a Muslim calls out to that God in prayer, they're like, there isn't another God listening. So So, in that sense, the one God is hearing these th- these different prayers, and, and in that sense, we're worshiping one and the same God, but the other side of that is our notions of God, and so of course, I worship a different notion of God than the Muslim or the Calvinist or even my wife, you know because, because my notions of God are deeply um, formed by my own experience, by my own psyche, my temperament, even my, my wounds and my sins, all of that. So I have a picture. So we've got two gods going here. We've got the God who is, and then the God I perceive. And the distance between those two is is pretty vast for everybody, I think. And that's, that, that vastness is a mystery, but also it's it's something that God has crossed, He's crossed that chasm into this world as Jesus Christ. So then I don't think we're just off the hook and saying, well, whatever notion you have, it's fine. It's like, actually, whatever notion you have affects how you live and how you treat other people. And so we better work at getting it right, knowing that we're always dealing with finite human notions or conceptions, right? So when I think about... I too, I was a hardcore five-point Calvinist in in like the late 80s. And um, wow, I remember the coldness of that because it meant having to say things that like that it would be good and glorious for God to predestine some to eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire, even apart from his foreknowledge of what their choices would be. And, And then I just began to see how... My conscience could not handle what that required me to do with particular scriptures. Like, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. So I know what we did. We said, well, he's not willing that any of the elect should perish, but that all of the elect should come to eternal And I knew for sure we were violating scripture, and my conscience couldn't bear that any longer as those kind of texts began to stack up, and we were forcing our system upon them. And I was still enough of a Bible worshiper <laughs> to, to, to just say, not okay, I'm walking away from this thing.
0: I think uh, Matt's question is kind of a problem for all of us, and we've all been on a journey. And that is that there is a, a clear understanding that the God, especially of Calvinism, but I would even take it back to Anselm and, and Augustinian understanding, and so I think let, let me see if what I'm saying is something you might agree with and that is that well clearly God is bigger than our conception of him and he can work then in and through our misconceptions but I'm guessing there is a limit to that
1: Yeah yeah I I would think there is a limit to that in the sense that um let's say he does not coerce us into a particular actions based on our misconceptions or conceptions. Right. And so if I have a misconception about God and he says, uh, love your enemies, but my, my misconception co-opts God and the scriptures as warrant to be his agent of violence, then um, I am not surrendering to God as he's revealed himself in Christ. And in that lack of surrender, he actually consents to that. And then, and and then um, that, well, look at the world. It's just a—it's right. a mess, and um, and it is because God, uh, He consents to our authentic otherness, even when it's toxic and violent. Um, he also participates in it in the sense that He becomes our victim <laughs> every time we do that. Every time we present Him as, uh, you know, as if the blood is on His hands or something like that. And it, mm-hmm. and and so those misrepresentations are a kind of re I think, of the Son of God. And and so these are the limits uh, uh, that you're talking about, in my opinion.
0: You know, I worked for twenty years in Japan, and I can have a certain degree of appreciation for Japanese thought or even forms of Buddhist thought. But I also understand, you know, that there is a limit to which. God can reveal himself or work in that. And so he's probably not going to be very well known in Molech worship. He's probably not going to be very well known in a Christianity that has more or less duplicated Molech worship. Yep. And so I guess this is actually the, the question that it seems that we in fact are infected that the church, or what is evangelical Christianity, is closer to Molech worship than it is to the faith of Christ.
1: Well, we get the name right at least, but, (laughs) you know, um, how is what you said true? It's true in this sense that the essence of pagan religion, like Molech worship, for example, was always about manipulating the gods through appeasement, sacrificial wrath appeasement. And that's basic to Molech worship. It's basic to Baal worship. It's basic to all uh, paganism. As, and I'm not even using the word pagan pejoratively. It's just, let's you know, those religions that would be uh, fascinated with child sacrifice or even animal sacrifice, although the Jews do some interesting subversion around that. in 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 the old testament but yeah to the degree that you're treating god as this volcano volcanic anger that needs Mm -hmm. that needs his his pure virgin to settle him down um that it that snuck into christianity through the word propitiation which is a brutal mistranslation of what's intended i think there and that's even how i was taught it at the ma level think of a volcano Think oh, wow. of a virgin being turned, I mean, and we're like, what, really? We're saying this is how the cross works? Yes, this is what we're saying. Well, okay, so we need to denounce that as paganism. And as as N.T. Wright has in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, he even has his own sort of extremely right modified version of penal substitution. But it, but he says that when we cross, we cross the line when we go into Wrath appeasement. Then, then we've paganized the gospel, and so we have. And that's actually seems to me the dominant, the dominant preaching from pulpits to this day, at least in Western Christianity.
0: And as I'm saying all that, I don't mean to be simply derogatory, because here, here were three people who have passed through the equivalent of Moloch worship, and so clearly God has worked in our lives. So I don't mean to just cancel anything out or say you know, how it may or may not be that uh, God is working. And really,
2: that's why I think that uh, Brad's work here is so important, because I think that for all of us, the way that that shift took place was with a sort of radical Christology or, you know, or a a Christocentric sort of understanding of who God is. That's where I think the, the shift really has to take place. Uh, is, is understanding that we only know the Father in and through the Son. And so, Brad, I want to ask you uh, what sort of key theological shifts follow when we transfer our notions of final authority from, you know, the Bible, in quotes, to Jesus Christ himself.
1: Right. So I should preface that by saying, uh, you know, many of our faith statements, the confessions of faith in Protestantism include a paragraph about that the Bible is our final authority for faith and practice, when in fact the Bible doesn't claim that. The Bible claims things like that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, or that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. So how do you practically have Jesus become your final authority? And the way I describe that is through the interdependent witness of the scriptures, especially those about Jesus in the red letters that represent his own words, and second, uh, the tradition of the church that summarized the gospel um, as a canon of faith that we see in, let's say, the Apostles' Creed and, and proclaimed in, in these creeds, who do you say that I am? We say that you're the Son of God, the eternal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. And then third, so we've got, what do we have? We've got the the, the, the scriptures the body of Christ but also the spirit of God he's given us his holy spirit so that the interdependent witness of the scriptures the church and the spirit come together to focus in on what how we might see Christ practically as our as our final authority once you do that then you need to read those three witnesses through Christ you we so we read the scriptures through Christ and and that lens we we read the church must bow before that Christ and and even our discernment of what the Spirit says and the the fruit of the Spirit must come through that, the words and the ways of Jesus. So even in the charismatic church, I mean, we had people that, you know, 15 years ago, they would talk about, well, you know, we, we believe not only in the scriptures, but also the spirit. Well, some of these same people now become radical, violent nationalists. <laughs> and they are like, why? Cause, well, cause the spirit told us it's like, well, then your idea of the spirits not being heard through the, the voice of Jesus. It's, I, and I want to say, it's not just circular reasoning in the sense that we read Jesus in the Bible. So it's still the Bible. It's like, no, it's, it's the Bible and the spirit and the church in concert Discerning together what is the will of Jesus, and it and it seems like those who come to that, who come to that conclusion, then it's now we come to your question, right? What are the dominoes that fall after that? Um, The ones I've seen is um, penal substitution topples because now it's it's a nonviolent reading of the cross, Um, eternal conscious torment topples because you can't have uh, god torturing people for all eternity even just by passively um old testament violence and needs to be re-read in the light of jesus and and so our hermeneutic shifts drastically uh, those are three big ones that i see and then ultimately the nature of god um that god, that jesus is an a face of god jesus is the image of of the fullness of God.
2: I want to ask you, Brad. I guess I just wondered, did, did you influence Brian's or Did he, or do I, is it the other way around? <laughs>
1: um, the way we met was that Jason Upton, the worship leader gave him a copy of stricken by God. Okay. And, um, and it really resonated with him, but Brian was already on that journey. So it seems like we can, we converged and just began collaborating uh, almost you know as we met each other up at at a crossroads yeah um, and so I, so you're going to see stuff in his work that sounds a lot like me and a s- stuff in my work that sounds a lot like him and sometimes we can't remember who thought it first but we think together a lot so yeah <laughs> No,
2: that's that's awesome. And there there's definitely the affinities there that you can hear in his preaching. And I think he's really uh helped a lot of people and, and, and so have you. And so I guess I wanted to to ask as almost a follow-up to the question of what you know shifts happen when we transfer our final authority from, you know, the Bible to Christ himself. You know, you say in your book that God is increasingly unveiled as a life giver rather than a death dealer. Uh I love that. And I guess I'm just wondering that if the revelation of God in the old testament is, you know Uh, you know, contradicted, to use a stronger word, or at least teleologically suspended or lifted or fulfilled uh, by the revelation of God in Christ in the New Testament. As a Christian, you know, is the only rational thing that that I can do in those situations is to to turn to, you know, to to allegory, right? An allegorical interpretation of some of these things, because I can no longer read those texts as literal documentary accounts if they they just quite literally go over it against. I would, for instance, that God is violent, et cetera. And again, I know there's sort of a, a huge aversion to allegory in, in sort of modern uh, evangelicalism or fundamentalism. But can you? I mean, is that then how you read uh, with Origin and with some of the other fathers? You know, those those more difficult sort of. Um, Texts in the Old Testament where God appears to be commanding, you know, terrible things like genocide and other things
1: Yeah, there's a few a few things we need to say about that one is that the, the that the Old Testament scriptures are inspired revelation But they are not always inspired revelation of the divine nature often they're inspired revelation of human nature and the human condition And our need for God to come in person to set things right, as he does in Christ. So when I find a a really toxic text, as we sometimes call them, I'm not like Marcion where I'm tempted to throw it away. I look at it and I say, does this text uh, reveal God or does it reveal us? Oh, it reveals us. Then why do we need it? As a mirror, because we still do this stuff. We still commit violence in God's name and send troops out to kill our enemies and call it crusades. And it's like, wow. Uh, so, um, unfortunately, you can use those very texts as license to do so. But I think what they're meant to, they're actually a critique of religious violence. The book of Joshua, for example, is it, is it an endorsement of re- religious violence? I think within the text itself, if you read it carefully, instead of just setting it aside, you get a profound critique of religious violence. So sometimes I think then of the narrators are not the authors. So I, I've written a couple novels now. Uh, hopefully the first one will be published next summer. And what I discovered in writing a novel is that I I'm, I'm the author and as the author I'm writing and I have a narrator who's describing the mindset of a character. And what I noticed really strongly is that the narrator voice is not an extension of the author. It's not a revelation of me at all. The the narrator voice is an extension of the character he's describing. So now I come to 1 Samuel 15, and you've got God commanding the narrator, saying that God is commanding Samuel to command Saul to go commit genocide. And so I look at this, I go, who is the author of this book? And I do actually believe that at some level it's the Holy Spirit. Who's the narrator, though? And does the narrator represent the Holy Spirit's voice or does the narrator represent Samuel's perspective? And I think, I think that's the case. And so we've got these old Testament toxic texts. We have to understand that they reveal the human condition and that that human condition even comes through in, in the, in the, in the limited worldview of the narrators themselves. All right. So now I'm going to read these as gospel. How do I do that? I think that I don't, you know, I appreciate origin a lot. I actually love origin, but my starting point isn't him. My starting point is the road to Emmaus, where Christ reveals to the two disciples how all the law and the prophets testify of him. Okay, so that right there, we see that Jesus' takeaway of the law and the prophets is that they are a testimony of him. And by the way, he also has an ethical takeaway. All the law and the prophets, he says, can be distilled to this, love God and love your neighbor. When it's not love God and love your neighbor, and when it's not a testimony of Jesus, we're not reading it the way Jesus did. So I want to learn to read it how Jesus did. And I used to think, oh, what a ripoff that I wasn't there and that the author of Luke didn't actually tell us how Jesus does that. Here's the good news. The early church fathers do. People like Origen do, but um, I want to just, I want to do a shout out to a book from the second century. Anyone can read it. The the, the full PDF is online free. St. Melito of Sardis. St. Melito of Sardis wrote a sermon for Pascha called On Pascha, P-A-S-C-H-A. And in there, he absolutely models how to do this. It's as if the people on the road to Emmaus had passed down the record of how to read the Old Testament, and it—I um, don't want to just say allegorically. It's like spiritually. It's like gospelly. How do you read the Old Testament as gospel? And here's how they do it. It's super simple, actually. You read the stories, fact or fiction, as prefiguring Christ. How do they prefigure Christ? Then is the question. Okay, so. If somebody in the story is suffering, like Joseph, their sufferings are prefiguring the sufferings of Christ. If the people of God are persecuting someone and dominating and hurting them, how does this prefigure Christ? Ah, it is because it is him that we were persecuting and dominating and and oppressing. And then And you just, I found about five or six different categories like this. It's like, oh my goodness, when you see it simply as prefiguring, oh, victory, when the people of God have a victory, even if it's ugly and violent, it's prefiguring the spiritual victory of Christ over Satan, sin, and death. And so there, that is the allegorical reading, but it's it's a prefiguring that answers this question. How is this about Jesus? Because he says it is. Um, if there's another way to read it, that doesn't do that. It's, it's just not a Christian way. And so, as Brian Zahn would say, we're not welcome into the Old Testament without Jesus as our sponsor. And so that's how I would approach it. And Melito absolutely um, explains how to do it and shows you how to do it in line after line of this amazing little sermon.
0: Let, let me on, build on that just a minute and see if you agree or disagree. And that is that what we have in the Old Testament is an evolving revelation. And that revelation then culminates in the person and work of Christ that is witnessed to in the New Testament. But that revelation, though it is complete in Christ, the apprehension of that revelation, we can see even in the New Testament, And in the first church, though we have in origin notions of nonviolence, in Tertullian, you know, a similar idea, churches both east and west, we still have an understanding, yeah, they got it, but they also didn't get it, that they missed issues like slavery. They missed issues like the treatment of women. They knew the gospel was nonviolent, but they did not yet recognize the depth of violence of the world that they were participating in. And so I think we often imagine we can go back to some sort of golden age. But in fact, the kingdom is an evolving apprehension of the revelation that we have in Christ. So that Even today, as we're talking, I suppose that no one is going to use the illustration that Origen used to depict the punishment of God. Well, that's like when you beat your slave. There's something kind of wrong there with the picture of God. And so the point being that, yes, Christ is the final and full revelation of God, but the apprehension of that revelation is still unfolding in in the kingdom, so that age by age, we're in a better place to understand two things. First of all, the depth of human sin and violence, and the brightness of the light that is exposing that violence.
1: Yeah, I I think the word evolving is super helpful, and here's why. Um, In some ways, we are evolving forward. So, The seeds, the seeds of freedom for slaves are there already in the Exodus account. Let my people go, right? Um, They're still working it out in the New Testament. And I think, I think subverting slavery subtly in books like Philemon, it's just a justification of it. It's, it's actually going to blow it up from the inside and yet see any resistance to it until there's, you know, there's maybe one mention of it where, where Gregory of Nyssa pushes back. But honestly, like we don't kind of get it until the last hundred years. Um, But I I think evolving is also helpful because we also mutate and not all of those mutations have been progressive. (laughs) So for example, then in the early church, it was more nonviolent and then it, it mutates by, Uh, becoming the religion of the empire. And I imagine if we think about it today and we look around the world, um, there's some things where I think we understand, but maybe we're willful. For example, with slavery, no one would use the Bible anymore to say that slavery is right. And yet probably slavery is a bigger problem than it's ever been. Um, I would say that we've had a regression But it's sort of two steps forward one step back um the regression around evangelical nationalism right now is is mind-boggling and um it feels medieval to me so so i feel like we're evolving we're evolving (laughs) but um i i feel pessimistic in the moment about about what some of those mutations have brought about (laughs) i'm not a progressivist in that sense and i (laughs) I almost do see the 4th century Christology as a golden age, and we're losing track of that again now. Um, But but there are ways in which we're beginning to see, let's say, the radical inclusion of Gentiles now extends to radical inclusion of the LGBTQ folks, which was unheard of even among like non-Christian society 30 years ago. So something's up and um, we have to discern whether what's up is the spirit of the age or spirit of Christ it's not always obvious to us hence the polarization <laughs> yeah. So,
0: if you have enjoyed part one of this podcast with Brad Jerzek, indicate this on social media we very much appreciate your pointing others to the work that we're doing also you can visit our Patreon page and Look at the various levels of support, or you can donate through our website. We are an independent ministry dependent on donation. Look for part two of this conversation with Brad Jurzak next week.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.